Well, with that as an introduction, uh, here is our second scripture reading for today, which comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning with the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have to say, as much as it's nice to take a break from preaching, as I did last Sunday, and have a chance to have some time to myself, it is kind of tough when Sunday comes every Sunday without fail. Uh, It is always nice to be back at preaching, because for me, it is a wonderful spiritual discipline, a chance to really delve into a text, to wade into it, to try and figure out what it might mean, and it is spiritually nourishing for me to do so. It also means that on Sunday morning, I get, I get to invite all y'all into the process. See, I'm becoming a Texan. <laughs> I'm sure you've been there before. You walk into a sanctuary or a meeting house. You're dressed in somber clothes, perhaps even black. You exchange a mumbled greeting with people you might recognize as you find yourself, as you find your way to a pew and sit down. After some mournful music starts, the minister, whether in a white alb or a black gown, gets up to a lectern and begins speaking. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. And then after a series of prayers, someone else gets up and reads the text that we had this morning from Revelation 21. And then the minister dutifully gets up and preaches a sermon about the deceased in heaven. It's a scene that's a common one, and in fact, by far the most common use of this text. But if we are to be good interpreters of this text, it's not really what the context of Revelation has in mind, in spite of its frequency. What Revelation has in mind here is not the place where people go when they die. 
That's not what John of Patmos is talking about. What John of Patmos is talking about is what happens at the end, the end times, the end of time, the consummation of things. That at the consummation of things, there will be a new heaven and a new earth here on this earth, this planet, this world, with all of its ups and downs and uncertainties. This world will be transformed from the broken place that it is to a new heaven and a new earth. And there, God will be present in an unveiled way, in an immediate way, in a way that God is not present today, where sometimes we don't know God's presence or feel God's presence. At that end of time, God will be present fully, and as a result, death will be no more, crying and weeping will be no more, pain will be no more. It's this great, powerful, and motivating vision of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, the transformation of this heaven and of, uh, the transformation of this earth into something new. That this ground, these, these things here will be transformed. Now, for the longest time, I always assumed that this image of the new Jerusalem, like the other uh, evocative images that we find in the book of Revelation, came out of a time of great persecution. That's at least what I was taught uh, before. Oftentimes we, as progressive Christians, liberal Christians, might read the book of Revelation and find a lot of these images alien to us, and we're not really sure what to do with them. A lot of them can be offensive to us, and one way that scholars have justified this is like, well, these people were under a period of great persecution, and so that's where this type of apocalyptic language comes from. That's what I'd always been taught. Well, this past week, uh, I was reading a book on Revelation. It's been on my shelf for a long time that then overturned this assumption of mine and, and opened my eyes to a new way of seeing this text. The book is called Crisis and Catharsis by Adela Yarbrough Collins. And what she points out, she's like, actually, most people, including Collins, puts the dating of Revelation around the mid-90s of the Common Era, mid-90s AD, during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. And in fact, at that time, there was not a great persecution of Christians going on. That, in fact, was not the historical context. Yes, there were some sporadic persecutions of various groups, but there's no evidence that we can find in history to say that Christians were singled out at this particular moment. Now, as Collins points out, the Christian group saw itself as a persecuted minority. They certainly would have remembered the persecutions of Nero in the past. They saw themselves as being different, but they weren't in the process of an intense persecution. Moreover, as Collins points out, in the letters to the individual churches at the beginning of Revelation... Those of you who are Bible geeks who grew up in really conservative household, or conservative churches will remember these things. In some of the letters at the beginning, there are warnings about the misuse of wealth. Well, if these churches have enough wealth to misuse, they're probably not being thrown in prison at that time. And so Collins says, instead, when you think about apocalypticism and the rise of apocalypticism or millenarian movements, uh, these movements, these apocalyptic moments come at times of social transition, times of social crisis, not necessarily times of persecution. So where there's great social dislocation, these types of things start to emerge. So if you look at U.S. history, one of the great moments of apocalypticism in U.S. history was during the 1840s. That's where we have the Millerite movement. And I know this is dusting off some U.S. history for some of you in the pews. But you have the Millerite movement. This is where you have the rise of the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. Both grow out of the Millerite movement of the 1840s. It's not a surprise this happens. Now, the 1840s, this is not a period of great persecution. But it was a period of great social dislocation. 
1837 was one of the greatest recessions in American history, the Panic of 1837. So by the early 1840s, there's still very much the hangover of a great recession. You have industrialization at, you know, happening at rapid rates. It's transforming society, transforming cities. If you, hear, if you read stories of people's lives back in the 1840s, most families moved a number of times from one place to another to another. These moves were great uh, periods of dislocation. There's a lot of dislocation going on in society. It's not a surprise, therefore, that in the 1840s you see the rise of these apocalyptic movements. Another period, say, for instance, the 1970s. Today, uh, a lot of people interpret Revelation in the context of what's known as premillennial dispensationalism, which is a 19th century British theory that now seems to be the way of interpreting Revelation. But premillennial dispensationalism became really popular in the United States, really starting in the 1970s. Those of you who uh, were around then (laughs) uh, would perhaps remember Hal Lindsey's book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, which then gave birth to uh, the whole Left Behind series after that. That type of apocalypticism grew out of the 1970s, and that's not surprising. Again, it's not a period of persecution, but it is a period of great social dislocation. The 1960s overturning uh, our basic values about what's right and what's wrong, uh, our, our trust in the government. You see the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandal. Is it really a surprise that all of a sudden you have a rise in apocalyptic writing coming up at that time? And what this scholar that I was reading, Adela Collins, says is that what Revelation does during these periods of crisis is that it offers a way of having catharsis through a very evocative prophecy that puts you in the center of it. So you're angry at the world, you're frustrated at the world, you're frustrated at the way things are going, you want to go overturn tables, you're not sure what you can do, you feel powerless, and then all of a sudden you read a prophecy that God is going to come in, and that violence you really want to do, well, that's going to be taken care of by God. And then in the end, everything will be great. And so, and so it gives you a chance to not be violent yourself, because you know God will take care of that violence. And so you can trust in the fact that your, your side will be right. Another thing about this apocalyptic writing is that it calls those who are believers to more holiness, more devotion to their cause. That's why there are those critical letters at the beginning about what happens when you step out of line. You need to be the super Christians because the end is coming and it's going to happen. So there's this dual force of a catharsis of, oh, I don't need to be violent, I don't need to be frustrated, I don't need to be annoyed because God will take care of it. Meanwhile, I just need to be a good Christian and things are going to happen. And then I buy another Left Behind book and I watch some more Kirk Cameron on TV. Everything will be good. (laughs) Now we find ourselves today, of course, in another period of social crisis. And in fact... I would say this is the beginning of an increasing period of social crisis. I think the next 10 years will have a lot more periods of social crisis than we've had. We have, again, the statistics are obvious, whether it be rising income inequalities, uh, also just people be, I mean, there's, again, you can sense the general frustration, the, the dividing into camps of different political groups, the anger that's there, the powerlessness. You see moments of, of violence coming out in society, Those moments of violence, I'm afraid, are going to be more common rather than less so in the years ahead. 
And so you see in American society, we're in this period of crisis, and America seeks some sort of type of catharsis. They want that release. They want it to be spoken to in some sort of profound way with profound images that draw you in. Which, of course, brings me to Game of Thrones. <laughs> and more particularly, again, I'm going to give some spoilers, so if you guys aren't into Game of Thrones, just you can plug your ears for about two minutes. Um, so last week... <laughs> There was this immense outpouring of frustration about what happened in Game of Thrones. And for those of you who didn't see the episode, here you go. Game of Thrones is remarkable in part because it has such a dark view of human nature. Game of Thrones, if you've watched it, is not a happy-go-lucky series. It talks very, in a very realistic way about human nature, which is, I think, one of the ways that we like it, because it draws us in. It speaks to the place where we are in society today. Yes, there's a crisis in Westeros, and there's a crisis in the U.S. I get it. And the thing is, you have these arcs of these different characters. Well, what's happened in the last couple seasons, as it's gotten away from George R. R. Martin's books, is that the really bad guys have been punished and killed off, and the good people have been doing well. Until last episode. (laughs) When one of the people who's supposed to be this great, shining hero then turns very, very dark. In the last episode. And what was remarkable to me was just the outpouring of, I mean, just the, of outrage that people had. How dare the writers do this to this character? How dare they do it to the character? Of course, which is funny, because like, the writers have been doing it to these characters for the entire time of Game of Thrones. But this was particularly frustrating because people wanted that catharsis. They wanted the good guy to win, the good person to win out. They wanted morality to be reaffirmed. They needed that because we're in a time of crisis. You see all this stuff going around, and yet you want Daenerys to be good Daenerys, not destroy the whole world and burn it down Daenerys. There's that need. And that's just Game of Thrones. (laughs) How, how, How do we find that in society today for us? We need this. We're in this midst of crisis. How many of you get frustrated by this? How many of you are discouraged by what's going on? How many of you sometimes want to go out and do a little violent stuff there? I, last week I, was at the, I visited the George H.W. Bush Museum for the first time. And in the, they have a visiting exhibit there now that's all on radicalism in American history. So various radical movements in American history, both in the right and the left. And, so, and they have certain polling questions as you're going through the, the exhibit. And one of the polling questions is, is violence an acceptable way to deal with sort of a social crisis? And over 25% of the respondents who've gone through the exhibit said yes. That's the moment we're in now. We, we sort of are in need of some sort of, we need some sort of story, some narrative, some arc, something that can provide meaning for this and draw us in. We need catharsis. One of the things that we wrestle with as progressive Christians, we read through, say, the book of Revelation, and it doesn't speak to us, by and large, I'm guessing. It doesn't speak to us, because, I mean, it would have spoken to the first Christians, of course, the imagery that, that, that John of Patmos draws on, it's imagery from Isaiah, it's imagery from Zechariah and Daniel, uh, it's imagery from some of the books that didn't make it into the canon of the Hebrew Bible, and that imagery gets woven into a society that's deeply imbued with prophecy and believes you know, firmly in the nature of prophecy and the type of prophecy that's in the book of Revelation. So for someone at the time to have read those words, it would have, it would have drawn the person in, in a way, but now, in a way that doesn't work for us. We, we, we read this now, and it seems alien to us. But we still have that need. We still need something in this mo- moment of crisis. 
Where do we find it? I would argue that we, we already have had such images, and they actually have quite a bit of power. Images of a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth that has power. I'll give you an example. How about the image of the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice? How many of you have heard that phrase in the last few years? The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's a famous quotation from Martin Luther King Jr. that he delivered in the early 1960s. It's an image that he can use that speaks to people talking about the new Jerusalem, talking about a new heavens and a new earth, so that he could be talking to people, say, in the civil rights movement, for whom the image of racial equality was just something to be a dream, a pipe dream in the future, and can still say, this is what the new Jerusalem is, this is what God's purpose is, this is what the new heaven and new earth looks like, and even though you may not see it because the arc of the moral universe is long, it bends towards justice. Even though when bad things happen, he can still say that, And you can see yourself in that narrative, and there's that sense of catharsis of even though this bad stuff is going on and we're in a crisis, there is that new Jerusalem at the end. There is that new heavens and new earth. There's something that draws you in. In 1912, in the Progressive Convention of 1912, when Theodore Roosevelt got up to deliver his speech as the candidate for the Progressive Party, he ended that speech with a very famous line. This is not a joke. This is the way he ended his speech. His speech, he said, we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. That's the way T.R. finished his convention speech in 1912. Because the progressive movement was battling, they thought, for the Lord. As they were fighting for shorter work weeks, higher wages, living, more sanitary living conditions, greater access to democracy, and also, yes, prohibition. This was seen as a holy struggle, but it was one that they were sustained in by this biblical imagery that was interwoven in their lives and had a goal, a new Jerusalem, an end that could keep motivating people. It was a way to use this type of imagery to deal with people in in, in moments of crisis. And I think if if I were to be honest, one of my big complaints with the progressive movement in the United States today, uh, with progressives in the United States today, is that there's no coherent vision of where we're supposed to go. It lacks this new Jerusalem. It lacks this new heaven and new earth. And so when there's ups and downs, people get frustrated and walk away. There's no image that's a driving image that can keep compelling people along. It doesn't exist. It needs to. If we're going to actually be good Christians and good people who want to live into whatever the new Jerusalem is, we have to name what it looks like and share that and and, and be inspired by that. Imagine living in a country where a parent doesn't have to make choices about whether or not he or she will bring their children to go see a doctor because they're afraid of a doctor's bill. Imagine living in a country where someone doesn't have to worry about going bankrupt because of doctor's bills. Imagine that. Every other developed country in the world is able to do this, except for the United States. And there are people that we all know, including people in this room and people outside, who've had to deal with medical bills that have been crippling. You're one medical bill away from bankruptcy. That's the world we live in. How is that the kingdom of God? How can we stay focused on that and actually have that be an inspiring thing of saying, hey, this is where we need to go. I don't care how we get there, but I'm going to fight to get there, and that's going to be part of that image. 
or the, or the sense of the person who has to set their alarm at 4 a.m. to get up in order to get to their second job, to be able to actually make ends meet. And maybe after doing that kind of routine for one year after another, the person gets one more setback, one more negative thing, and then just gives up on the process of trying to advance that person's life. I've seen it happen personally. We are not good about giving people opportunity to go from one income class to another. We tax people constantly who are poor, whether it be we charging them for bank accounts or charging them for payday lending. We charge them for everything under the sun to try and make it as hard as possible. We have unjust schools and unjust, and we do make it as hard as possible to get from wherever they are to a better place in society. It's harder now to break out of poverty than it has been in the last 60 years. There's plenty of evidence that points to this. And yet, what are we doing to fix this? Where's this image of how life should be? We live in Houston, Texas. Think of how many undocumented people are in Houston, Texas. People who've been working in this country for decades, okay, who now are living in fear that potentially they could be taken away tomorrow and cut off from their families permanently. Like 90% of Americans agree that if someone's been here and is a good citizen working hard, that there should be some sort of path to citizenship, and yet there's absolutely no political way forward. Where is that vision that can motivate us to get up and do something? That's my question for you today to wrestle with. As we see this vision of a new heaven and a new earth that John of Patmos gives us in Revelation, what sort of new Jerusalem do we have that can motivate us and draw us into that future? What sort of story do we have that convinces us that God is still present in the midst of this? So that we don't have to lash out in violence and so that we can focus on being good Christians. How can we have a story that motivates us to work together to continue to build this community? Imagine this community continuing to grow and continuing to build and continuing to be a place of transformation of learning about how God is working in our lives, about being able to talk about that and being able to put that into action as the congregation continues to pulse and grow and think of how much impact that can have in our community. But it all starts with that vision, that vision of what it looks like. When I was in divinity school, one of the songs we used to sing was a song that touches on this. It was actually composed by one of the teachers at YDS. It goes like this. We wait for a new heaven and a new earth. We wait where righteousness is at home. We wait. We wait. We're still waiting. <laughs>